Good morning. When I'm with you. Come on. Good morning. All right. Good to, good to see you here this morning. Um, really quickly, uh, uh, a couple of things. Uh, the men's Thursday group, it's no longer to be announced. I know we have TBA on there, so maybe we get that fixed. But they meet at Mountain Mike's in Castro Valley. And so we will put that up. So if you're a, you've been looking for a, a group to go to, maybe you want to go to more of a men-specific group, we have one. Um, and so they've been meeting at the Mountain Mike's in Castro Valley. So uh, if you just want an excuse to eat pizza, too, that's great as well. Uh, uh, but nonetheless, we'll make sure we get that up there for you. The second thing is, can we pray for Mikey and Jerry this morning? Um, I'd be, okay, there was a few of you. <laughs> Can we pray for Mikey Jerry this morning? Yeah, okay, good. Uh, they, uh, for those of you that were here last week, if you're, not, if you're new here, we actually got a chance to kind of release and see uh, two of those individuals who kind of planted with us from the very beginning. Now they're taking over a church and pastoring in Hayward. And so this is their first morning this morning. And so him and I have been texting, we've been talking, and uh, this is the beginning of, of a scary yet fun adventure. And so can we just pray for them right now? Uh, let's do it. Heavenly Father, thank you for your kingdom. Uh, your kingdom is so much bigger than one church in one location with one pastor. Uh, you are so concerned with the global church, the capital C church. We're just a little C church. And so we pray together uh, for Mikey and Jerry, Pastor Mikey and Jerry this morning. Will you anoint their hands and their feet and their mouths? Uh, Lord, will that church in Hayward uh, Lord, right next to Tennyson High School, will it just be filled with your glory and your kingdom would come. Uh, so bless Mikey as he gets ready to preach and as he stands before his congregation, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, like I just mentioned, last week we kind of took a pause from our sermon series just to kind of bless and honor Mikey and Jerry, and they got a chance to come up here and bless us. And so it was just such a beautiful moment. But since last week we did take a pause from our Nehemiah sermon series. I'm going to jump back into Nehemiah, but I want to give just a bit of a refresher. Uh, we've kind of gone over the first uh, one and a half chapters. So I'm going to bring you up to speed so we can jump into the rest of today's uh, message. And so I'll just share with you a couple of broad things. The book of Nehemiah is about a man called by God to rebuild a broken city. In the first two chapters of Nehemiah, they record the events that took place leading up to the rebuild. So you could kind of call it the pre-build portion of Nehemiah. And so it was about a four-month period of time in which Nehemiah was preparing to go and do the work of rebuilding. <clears throat> and in that four-month period of time, kind of three milestones took place. And we went over this the last couple of weeks, but again, we're refreshing this morning. The first uh, milestone is that Nehemiah was given a burden. Nehemiah was given a burden. Uh, in chapter 1, we're told that Nehemiah, uh, uh, he's an exile in Persia serving the king as a cupbearer, and he receives a report um, from his brothers about his homeland that breaks his heart. And his brothers tell him that the people of Jerusalem are in trouble, that the people of Jerusalem are in shame because the city walls are broken and the gates have been burnt down. Uh, uh, that great city has been in ruins for several, several years. And so Nehemiah has a burden. The second milestone, we realize that after he has a burden, he gets a vision. But Nehemiah, actually, his tears turn quickly into prayers. 
He begins to prayer. He begins to pray. And after a time of praying and fasting, Nehemiah becomes determined that he himself is going to go back to Jerusalem and lead an effort to rebuild the city. And finally, we talked about Nehemiah's favor. Uh, he receives the report. He His heart breaks with a burden for a broken city. He begins to pray, and he comes up with a plan uh, to rebuild the city, and now he needs favor. And after four months of praying and planning privately, Nehemiah, like I said before, is a cupbearer to the king, is asked by the king, what's wrong with you? The king notices that Nehemiah is carrying a sadness of heart. And Nehemiah tells him, I'll tell you what's wrong with you. My father's, the, the graves of my father's, the city of my father the city of my people is destroyed and then the king asks him well what what would you need from me what would you want me to do and in that moment nehemiah makes three bold asks he asks the king three bold things the first thing that nehemiah asks if you remember is for permission he says king send me to jerusalem i don't want to go unless you send me The second thing he asks for is protection. He says, if I'm going to go, um, I want to make sure that I can pass through unharmed. And so the first thing he says, king, send me to Jerusalem. The second thing Nehemiah says to the king is, give me letters so that I may pass. And finally, he asks for provision. He says to the king, and this might be the hardest thing to ask for. He says to the king, I need timber from the king's forest. So he says, give me permission to go. Give me protection to go, and then give me provision to go, and I want to go into your forest, and I want to be able to cut from the timber, and I want to bring timber with me to help rebuild this city. And uh, In chapter 1, verse 8, the miracle is summed up when Nehemiah says this, and the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. Now, what a, just for a moment, what a perfect picture of God's providence partnering together with man's faithfulness let me say that again what a perfect picture of God's providence his sovereignty God is in control nothing surprises him he orchestrates history so that his will can be done on earth as it is in heaven what a perfect blend of God's providence but also man's faithfulness now there's some implications for you and I right here in that just in that phrase alone it reminds us that God is in total control that he's orchestrating history he's not surprised Surprised by our current political climate in the United States. He's not up there thinking to himself, man, I wonder what I'm going to do. I didn't plan for this to happen. He knows exactly what's happening. In fact, he's orchestrated it as God's sovereignty and his providence. Are you with me? But his total control is not an excuse for you and I to be passive. Well, since God's in control, then I just kind of walk my life the way I want to walk kind of do what I want to do, and I'll be who I want to be. Just because he's in control doesn't mean that you're required to be a passive participant. Let me explain to you a secret about, and it's not so secret, but let me explain to you the beauty about God's providence. He has chosen in his providence to bring about his purposes in history through faithful men and women willing to move in his will. In his providence, in his control, in his sovereignty, he's determined inside of that providence to partner with the faithfulness of men and women. That's what he's predetermined. And I want to just say this. Worship is a response to the beauty of God. 
You see, when you and I come into the presence of something beautiful and something wonderful, we gaze. When we, maybe you've been to the Grand Canyon, maybe you've been to Yosemite, maybe you've been to one of these beautiful places. You ever felt like, man, I'm in the presence of something bigger and something greater than me, and you have to stop, and you have to just be in awe. You, may, you might even respond verbally. Maybe you're speechless and silent. Maybe you pull out your cell phone and take a picture, and you let everybody know where you're at because you are in the presence of something greater than you. That's what worship is. Worship is an, a response to something bigger and greater and more beautiful than you are. Worship is our response. And I like to let you know worship is not just a couple of songs on Sunday morning, but worship is even you willing to do work for God. But remember, we don't do work. We don't do work out of uh, we don't do work out of a um, an obligation or a desire. We do work out of a response. When you're serving in church, uh, when you're maybe doing something for the Lord and you start to become angry or bitter or hurt or wounded or you start to be feeling used or you start, it's because you've taken your attention off of your response to his beauty and you start doing it for somebody else. And so even our worship, our songs, our, 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 our stillness in the presence of God is a form of worship, but so is our duty and our work. The only problem is, is that we work, we work from a place of response to God's beauty, not from a place of obligation to it. Are you with me? And so God's providence and man's faithfulness blend together to shape history. And I am so honored and so glad, and I hope you are too, that he invites you and I to be a part of this history-shaping process. And so if you have your Bibles, let's open up to Nehemiah chapter 2. And we're going to read verse 9 through 16. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9 through 16. And let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. We love you. And we ask that your will would be done. We ask that your word will go out. And we ask that seed will be planted on good soil. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would speak through me and you'd speak to every heart and mind in this room like only you can. I'll do my best to step out of the way and let you have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9 through 16. It reads like this. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river. This is Nehemiah speaking. And gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. 
and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Now, up until this point, everything has only been preparatory. It's been the pre-build to the rebuild. Nehemiah has prayed and planned. He's even collected resources from the king. Now we see Nehemiah actually arriving to Jerusalem. Now let me tell you a little bit about that journey. It was a thousand mile journey from Susa to Jerusalem, which means it took him a couple of months just to get there. But now he was finally there and he was ready to do the work. Now I want you to notice Nehemiah's unconventional first steps. He arrives, he's ready to do the work, but there are some unconventional first steps that Nehemiah takes. He starts with a brief time of discretion and inspection. Let me explain what discretion and inspection is. You see, we're told in verse 12 that Nehemiah goes out at night. We're also told a few times that he tells no one. In verse 16, it tells us that he doesn't even share his plans with his own people. So the question becomes, why would Nehemiah be so discreet about what he wants to do? What was the wisdom behind his discretion? Was he being shady? Was he being sneaky? Why wasn't he telling people his plan? Why was scripture, why was it so important for scripture to record a time of discretion? Well, I want you to know that Nehemiah wasn't a naive man. Nehemiah understood. Are you ready for this? Nehemiah understood. Anytime God has a plan, there's always an enemy ready to attack. Anytime God has a plan, there's always an enemy ready to attack. You see, Satan has come to kill, steal, and destroy. And he wants to kill, steal, and destroy the plan of God. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy the plan of God in a city. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy the plan of God in a nation. And he wants to kill, steal, and destroy the plan of God in the life of a man or a woman in this room. Nehemiah wasn't naive. He understood that whenever God has a plan, the enemy has an attack. It's inevitable. He is a roaring lion. And so he realized that he has to move carefully. He realized he has to move wisely. He has to move discreetly. He realized he has to move in God's time. And I want you to know that there's something that kind of emerges now that we're talking about opposition. There's two kinds of threats that pose a, a, a threat against Nehemiah. Two kinds of threats. Let me explain to you what they were. The first one were external threats. Obvious external opposers to the work of God. And if you remember, there were men like Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant. They were mentioned in verse 10. These men were governors and officials from the neighboring regions of Judah. And here's what I want you to know about them. As long as Judah remained weak, they stood to gain. But a rebuilt and a refortified capital posed a threat to their power. And I'm going to talk more about this later. There were external threats. But here's another thing that's maybe not so noticeable or obvious. There were also internal threats. Now, these threats are not mentioned by name. But nonetheless, Nehemiah understood the possibility of their existence. 
He knew that even without, he knew that even within his own community, are you hearing me? He knew that even within his own community, there would be people who would oppose the work of God that God had called him to accomplish. Now, how could that happen? How could your own brothers and sisters turn on you? How could your own community turn on the work that God wants to place in your life? Isn't everyone supposed to be on the same team? Sometimes it's not the external uh, threats that harm you, but it's the friendly fire that destroys you. I said, sometimes it's the friendly fire that destroys you. Sometimes the friendly fire is harder to understand. And so we know that the devil wants to attack me, but I don't know why my Christian brothers and sisters want to attack me too. And sometimes for Christians, it's not the enemy that takes them out. Well, it is, but it's the enemy disguises the brother and sister next to them. And this is a hard truth. Sometimes the biggest threat to what God is doing does not come from the outside, but from those on the inside. Sometimes the biggest threat does not come from those who don't want to see the work done, but maybe want to see the work done, but they want to see it done in their own way, in their own time. Are you with me? I was reading a book. It's called Boundaries for Leaders. Uh, if you're a leader, you want to grow, take notes. Boundaries for Leaders. And when I... Um, when I was reading this book, um, it had a quote that reminded me of Nehemiah in this situation. Let me read to you what this quote says. It says this. And in this book, this quote is coming from a man who started an organization. He was a leader over an organization. He was going through a situation in which he was trying to restructure the organization because he realized there had been a lot of unhealth in the organization. Listen to what he says. He says this, when I started an organization, no one told me that half of my energy would be spent actually building and leading it, and the other half or even more would be spent protecting and defending it against all of the, all of the things other people wanted it to be. It takes a ferocious amount of spinal fortitude to not end up making a crappy mix of your vision and endless bits and scraps from what others who didn't have the guts to do something themselves wanted to be. No doubt Nehemiah had what this author called spinal fortitude. Now, let me tell you a couple of things about threats. There is an inevitability of threats. Are you with me? Can we just make a quick observation? Nehemiah asked for letters from the king to pass through. Do you guys remember that? And you remember when we started this in verse 9, it told us not only did Nehemiah get letters from the king, but he also got a king's escort. We started verse 9. Verse 9 described horsemen that were riding with Nehemiah. The king literally sent men from the army, from his army to pass with Nehemiah. So let me tell you something. Even with protection from the king, Nehemiah still had to face threats. Just because the king had him protected doesn't mean he still wasn't going to face threats. Threats are inevitable. You might as well just learn now. If you're going to serve Christ, the attack is inevitable. Now, let me tell you about the second thing that Nehemiah understood. He, stood that, he knew that threats would be inevitable, but you know, you know what else he understood? He knew, he knew that threats were tools to sharpen him. Let me explain. Notice the presence of enemies and the presence of opponents didn't paralyze Nehemiah from going. Notice the threats and the opponents. They were present, they were there, but they didn't stop him from advancing. They didn't stop him from moving. Are you with me? Threats only sharpened his movement. It didn't stop his movement. They sharpened his movement, making it more strategic. Now, let me just say a couple of things. Enemies and opponents, 
didn't stop Nehemiah from walking. They only caused him to walk wiser. They only caused him to walk wiser. They matured him a little bit. You see, we can't allow the presence of opposition to stop us from walking, nor can we allow it to take wisdom out of our walk. But instead, every threat is a chance to sharpen you. Every threat is a chance to grow you in wisdom. And let me tell you the goal of the enemy's opposition, two things, to stop you from walking or to keep you walking, but walking, but keep you walking in a way in which you walk out of wisdom. Nehemiah, discretion. Inspection, number two. I want to talk about inspections. Number two, he took discretion. And the second one was inspection. Now, the Hebrew word used in verse 13 and 15 for the word inspection is the word sabar. Sabar. Now, let me explain to you what sabar means. It's a medical term which refers to probing a wound to see the extent of its damage. Probing a wound to see the extent of its damage. Now, there's two characteristics I want to point out about Nehemiah's three days of sabar. He took three days of inspection. And I want to point a few things out. Number one, this inspection was up close and personal. Nehemiah journeyed, and I said this before, a thousand miles from Susa to Jerusalem. Several months of travel. Not because the reports of the damage given to him by his brothers were inaccurate, but because he wanted to see the devastation for himself. I mean, what a great display of what godly leadership looks like, amen? Nehemiah doesn't just raise the funds necessary to fix the city, but he travels to ground zero himself, rolls up his sleeves, and gets his hands dirty. And can I share something with you? As I was thinking through this portion of scripture, and as I was thinking through this thought, and as I was praying, there's something that's been hitting me for a while now, and I thought I would share it with you. Uh, It's a little tough, but hear me out. My prayer is that we don't just become a church that throws money at the problems of our city. Let that sting you for a bit. My prayer is that you don't just become a Christian that throws money at the problems of the city. What do I mean by that? I'm praying we actually become a church full of men and women who travel to the brokenness, roll up their sleeves, and spend time with the brokenness just as much as we're willing to give our money to it. I didn't think I'd get a lot of hand claps for that. Let me just tell you something. Let me do, it's so much easier to write a check and send it off because it doesn't require your time. It doesn't require that you have to actually plan time to get up and see the brokenness in person. It doesn't require that you have to move very much. You write a check and sure, let me just tell you something. I love that God, those God have called to bless us financially. Without finances, we won't make the movement move forward. But if we're going to be a church that looks different than the world, then we got to be a people that's willing not just to spend our money, but to spend our time. Number two, not only was it up close and personal, but it was also sobering and honest. In Nehemiah chapter one, Nehemiah weeps over the report. But in chapter two, there's no doubt in my mind that the inspection is more painful than the report. 
We're told that in some areas the damage was so bad that Nehemiah couldn't even ride his horse through it. Here's a moving thought. Scripture doesn't say this, but here's a moving thought. Imagine Nehemiah riding through his broken city late at night and having to make frequent stops because he was moved to tears and he couldn't see where he was going. Nehemiah knew in order to fix something God wanted to fix, he first had to take an honest look at how broken it really was. Let me ask you an honest question. When's the last time you saw bar? When's the last time you inspected what God has called you to? You know, I remember I was a youth pastor in Hayward for several years. I used to spend a lot of my days writing sermons, preparing classes, making contacts, emails, text messages over the phone. I used to spend all my day doing that. I remember one day thinking, I spend too much time in this office. So you know what I decided to do? I decided to take a walk. At first, I thought I was wasting my time, but as I was walking the streets of my city, I realized how broken they really were. I realized how broken they were. And when, upon realizing how broken they were, I couldn't help but respond in prayer. And so not only did I walk my streets, but I began to see the brokenness. And in seeing the brokenness, I actually began to pray. I was moved to pray. But be careful when you're moved to pray. Because you can begin to pray. But as you pray, you can't help begin to move. You can't help but begin to actively engage your city. I remember one day as I was walking... I was walking over what we were calling the umbilical cord at the time. And really what it was, it was just this old, old fenced up bridge that bridged one side or the other for the BART tracks. And I was walking over that. And I remember as I was walking, there were a group of young men that were hanging out, no older than 20, probably 22 years old. And there was about five of them hanging out. And I was with a young man and we were both walking. And I remember as I was walking up, they all stood up and they had this look on their face. And this look on their face wasn't this look of invitation, but it was a look of anger and intimidation. And I remember them walking up to me, and you could just feel it and sense it. If you've been around the block for a while, you can tell when you're, somebody's walking by you friendly, or you could tell when somebody is sizing you up because you're in the wrong territory, you're in the wrong place. This is their space, and you can't pass. They won't let you pass. And I remember them coming up and kind of circling around us, and I began to think to myself, how am I going to get out of this because I feel like we're about to get jumped right now. And, of course, I clenched with one fist. I had my fist clenched, and I thought to myself, this is just my flesh. And I thought to myself, I'm going to have to fight my way out of here. My poor friend that was with me, he, he's not a fighter. And you ever know, like, when you're this city, I said that. I said, I'm the youth pastor of this city. I remember they stopped, and I said, I'm going to tell you what. You guys are the youth in my city. And I said, and God's called me to minister to you. And, and I remember they kind of freezed up for a moment. They looked a little bit different. I don't think they were ready to get hit with the youth pastor thing. They... <laughs> 
they've been in the streets for a while. I'm sure they've been hit with a lot of stuff. But I don't think anyone's ever looked them in the eye and said, wait a minute, guys. I'm a youth pastor. I'm called to minister to you. And I remember just for a brief moment, there was a window. One of the dudes kind of released up a little bit. They kind of backed up. One of the dudes was still circling like he didn't care. But there was some relief. And I remember they said, all right. And I remember in that moment, I said, you know what? I said, um, can I pray with? Nah, nah, you don't need to pray with us. We don't need Jesus. They began to say all these things. They started to get a little crazy again. And at that point, I said, okay, I better walk. I'm, I said enough, right? And so we just, we said, all right, thank you. So we just began to walk. And, and, and of course, of course, the gentleman was with me who was behind me at the time was just kind of, you know, he was a, he's a little farther ahead. And I said, hey, I'm, I said, hey, can you wait for me? Um, uh, and so we went for on our walk, and we had this strategy. We were going to take the next block around to get back to, get back to the church, right? We weren't going to encounter them again. All of a sudden, I just felt inside of me, uh, something inside of me said, no, go back. Now, I don't want to, look, I'm not calling anyone here to be a, a, be a superhero or anything else, but this is something I feel like the Lord was telling me to do. And so you know what I did is I stopped at the taqueria, and I said, you know, if I am going to go back, I'm going to be wise, amen, right? I'm going to be wise. I ain't going to just come with prayer. I'm going to be like Jesus. I'm going to multiply the tacos. And so here's what I did. Here's what I did. I bought, I bought some taqueria. I bought about 12 tacos and for about four dudes, and I brought it back, and I had my little bag. And they got up again as I was coming. I said, hey, I just want to let you guys know I bought you guys some tacos. And they were kind of looking at me crazy, and I said, here you go. I said, look, I'm the pastor of church right down the road. I said, you guys got to at least let me pray for you. And they said, okay. And I remember we began to pray. We had a little brief discussion. But let me tell you something. Later on that night, we had youth going on in a little house that we used to have youth ministry, and two of the guys walked by and stopped inside and began to talk to me. He said, hey, is it all right if we, stop, we start coming by? Uh, we've always walked by the church, but we've never really went inside before, and is it okay if we come along and come inside? Sometimes getting up close and personal is dangerous. Sometimes getting up close and personal is uncomfortable. Sometimes it may require us to do some things we don't want to do, uh, but this is what it takes to partner with God to fix something that's broken. This is what it takes to partner with God to fix broken things. It won't always be comfortable and it always it won't always be perfect and it won't always be everything you want it to be, but sometimes you have to trust the Lord. Sometimes you got to run. God will say that too. Don't get me wrong, but sometimes you got to trust the Lord. Are you with me? Yeah. When when was the last time you walked around your neighborhood and prayed? When was the last time? Right before bed. 9 o'clock, 8 p.m., you said to yourself, dinner's done, I'm going to go outside for a walk, and I'm going to walk with the purpose of walking around every house that I have, and I'm just going to pray. When was the last time you walked around your neighborhood and prayed? I wish Inspired Church would have a church full of members that would walk around their neighborhoods and pray. But here's what's dangerous. You want to know what's really dangerous about walking around your neighborhood and praying? That the Lord might call you to act. And when the Lord calls you to act, you'll move. But you know what that looks like? That's what a missional person on moving on mission on purpose looks like. When's the last time you took an honest and sobering look at where God has placed you and told the Lord, show me the brokenness so I can be a part of your solution? Now watch, everything that Nehemiah has done up until this point has only served to make Nehemiah, you ready for this? A more credible man with a more credible vision. Let me explain. Uh, let's go to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're almost finished here. Verse 17 through 18. It reads like this. I'm going to go quickly. It reads like this. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? So this is Nehemiah after he inspects 
And after he inspects discreetly, three nights, he goes around, he visits the city, inspects the brokenness, doesn't say a word. Finally, after inspecting discreetly, it's time for him to release the vision to those that are with him. He says this, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. Now, I want you to pay attention to this last part. And they said, let us rise up and build. Let me tell you something. Nehemiah had prayed. Nehemiah had fasted. He passed the time test. He's a proven leader who's willing to get up close and personal and get his hands dirty. No wonder why here in verse 17 and 18, he casts the vision that people are willing to follow. Let me give you a leadership tip. Some of us get frustrated because nobody listens. Nobody likes our ideas. We even feel held back in our leadership. This is true for the workplace. This is true for the church. This is even true at home. Sometimes it feels this way because the lack of credibility and character people see in our lives. When you don't have credibility and character, your vision is not a vision people want to follow. If people aren't following, it's not always on them. It just might be that they're not buying into what you're selling. Men, I want to challenge you. Husbands, I want to challenge you. Some of us husbands, I wish my wife was more submitted. Look at Scripture. Scripture says, wives, submit to your husbands. We like to use that one all the time. But I'm going to tell you something. Before it says, wives, submit to your husbands, it says, Christ, love her. And give up your life for her like Christ did for the church. Maybe there's no submission in the house because there's no leadership in the house. Maybe you need to start asking yourself, I need to be a man that somebody could trust to follow. You see, sometimes people will follow someone that makes them feel safe and they cast a compelling vision. People don't just follow, and you know this, men. You won't just follow a man that comes out of nowhere all prideful, arrogant, and ego saying they got all the answers to the problems, but you don't even know who they are. You've never seen them do a thing. They don't lift a finger. You probably look at them and say, get out of my face. You have no credibility with me. But Nehemiah was a man of credibility. He prayed. Nehemiah was a man who fasted. Are you with me? Nehemiah, he, he allowed his character to be shaped. He took his time. He didn't rush things. And then when he finally did get there and he was ready to work, he understood that enemies were everywhere. He realized the enemies would come against him. So he rolled up his sleeves. He inspected discreetly. And after all that was done, he casted the vision and people followed. Are you with me? I hope some of you are taking notes here. You need to become a man or a leader that people can follow. And the only reason why they'll follow is because they trust. They trust. They feel safety and security that you're a man of prayer. You're a man of fasting. That you're a man that doesn't make decisions out of fear, but out of wisdom. I want to finish today's message by circling back to opposition. Remember in verse 10... We were introduced to Sambalot and Tobiah, and we're told, ready? We're told this. It displeased them greatly that someone would come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And then we're told at the end of chapter 2, verse 19, that they come back again. And listen to what chapter 2, verse 19 says. But when Sambalot, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, you ready for this? They jeered at us and said, 
What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I want to make three observations regarding opposition, and then we're going to finish up. And I want to invite the team to get ready, please. Number one, three observations, and we're going to move quickly through this about opposition. First of all, notice when the opposition comes. Notice when the opposition comes. I think somebody needs to see this this morning. Opposition didn't come during the burden stage. Opposition didn't come at the vision stage. Opposition didn't come during the praying and planning stage. Nor did opposition even come as he was asking for favor. You want to know when the opposition decided to come? When Nehemiah decided to go. The opposition came when Nehemiah finally decided to get up and go. The opposition was not at the dreaming stage, not at the praying stage, not at the favor stage, but at the doing stage. Are you listening to me? The enemy of your soul doesn't mind you talking about it. He doesn't mind you at connect groups gathering together and dialoguing about it. He doesn't mind that at all. Now, he'll do some things to try to stop that. He's the enemy in opposition is there every step of the way, but he'll let you talk about it. Can I tell you a little bit of a secret? Some of you might disagree. He won't even mind you praying about it because that can even be a great excuse for Christians. Yeah, I'll pray about it. He doesn't mind you talking about it. He doesn't mind you writing it down on paper. But you know what he hates? He hates when you decide. He hates when you decide. He hates when you decide. You know what he hates? He hates when you commit to something. Hmm. Like I said, don't get me wrong. You'll experience degrees of opposition every step of the way. But I've found that in life, Real intimidating resistance doesn't start revealing itself until I've determined in my heart to get up and take the next step. And I know, I know there's someone in here who understands me, and I want you to watch this. Some of you Christian veterans in here, you know this. So here's what you've done. You've been in the game long enough to know the enemy hates your commitment. And so here's what you've reasoned. If I don't commit... I won't get attacked. But here's what I want to exhort you with this morning. Living a life of fear and timidity is never better than living a life on mission, regardless of opposition. And here's here's the lie. You're going to get attacked either way. Life is going to be hell either way. So you could either live through hell on your own or live through hell on the rock of Jesus Christ. You're going to get it either way. You think the streets is better? Somebody in here could tell you you're going to get it. You think living a life outside of organized religion? Either way, let me tell you something. There's a story Jesus tells about a house that was built on sand and a man who built a house on a rock. And here's what's really interesting about the story. Both houses got hit with storms. Both houses got hit with storms, but only one house stood in the storm. And that was the house built on the rock. Look, there are Christians, there are believers and non-believers. There are followers of Christ and non-believers of Christ. All of them are going to get hit with storms, but there's only particular kinds of houses built on particular types of foundations that can weather the storm. 
Amen. 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 He did. Now let me tell you something. Let me tell you different kinds of attacks that could play out in your life. First, it could come from the inside, an inner voice, a deep-seated insecurity that tells us, who are you kidding? Give up. Don't commit. An inner voice that reminds you of all the hurts and the pains and the wounds of the last time you committed, the last time you made a choice, the last time you decided. It's second. It could come from outside voices. You ever get hit with an outside voice? We become tempted to turn away from God's voice out of fear of what others will say, what others will think. And I want you to know this kind of opposition is inevitable and it's consistent. It's reoccurring. Every Christian who has ever done anything eternally impactful has always had to deal with these kinds of enemies. And I want to conclude and finish by looking at Nehemiah's response to his opponents. In chapter 2, verse 20, it says this, Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build but you have no portion or right to claim in Jerusalem Nehemiah refuses to play defense Nehemiah know and knew exactly what he would do let them mock but as for him he'll serve the Lord he didn't need to put together a crisis response team he didn't need to prove himself to them by engaging in their arguments. He didn't allow the enemy's jeering to get him to stop. He was called to work, and opposition was simply a distraction to get him to focus off of the mission. Nehemiah displays not confidence, but confidence. He could have debunked their claims of rebellion. Listen, he had every right to debunk their, the claims of rebellion. He could have just pulled out the letters from the king and argued. But instead... He placed the, instead of placing his confidence in man, he placed his confidence in God. And he said, nobody but God will make me prosper. And then I love this. At the very end, Nehemiah reminds the enemy of his paper-thin authority. He said, you have no portion and no right to my city. Some of us need to start praying like that. Some of us need to start reminding the enemy. Some of us need to start reminding ourselves they have no heritage, no right, or no memorial over me, my family, my marriage, my sons, my daughters, my house, my city. Some of you, I'm going to make you a little uncomfortable, right? We have unity and diversity. Some of you in here are a little quiet. Some of you are a little bit louder. But can I just say, some of you need to get a little Pentecostal sometimes. You need to raise that little voice up sometimes. You need to raise up those little timid hands sometimes. Get them up a little bit higher and start declaring over all those broken things in your life that the enemy has no portion over them. He has no portion over me. He has no portion over my addictions. He has no portion over my family. He has no portion over my marriage, my children, my brothers, my sisters. He has no portion, no heritage, no rights devil you might as well move on and go somewhere else because I will not be moved I've made up my mind I've made the decision I've committed to move forward I'm not looking back you might as well move because I will not be moved 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 and I wonder if there's any family in here, any people in here that just need to pray that prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now in the name of Jesus. Hallelujah. 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 We come before you right now. Come on. Come on. 
we come before you, right? All the enemies, the external threats. Come on, let it go. Come on, God, I will walk in, I will walk in wisdom. When the threat and the opposition comes, it will, it, it will not move me. It will sharpen me. Come on, be sharpened. Fight in wisdom. Some of us, you're facing threats and oppositions, and you're fighting it in your own power, and you're making it worse. I won't be moved. I won't be moved. I won't be moved. Come on. Come on. I won't be moved. I'll fight. I'll fight. I'll fight. Come on. Why don't you? You have no right and no heritage. Here's what the blood of Jesus does. The moment you said yes to Jesus, the moment you said yes to Jesus, the moment you said yes to Jesus, the enemy has no ownership over you. None. None. No ownership. You were purchased. You were bought. You were bought with his blood. You were bought with his blood. You were bought by and with his blood. You were bought by his blood. You were bought by his blood. When you said yes to Jesus, when you put your faith and trust in him, you said, I'm not going to trust in man. I'm not going to trust in title. I'm not going to trust in position or ministry. But I'm going to trust in my position with you as a son or a daughter of the king. Come on, some of you need to fight for your family right now. Some of you need to fight for your family right now. Come on, no right, no portion in my house. No right, no heritage. I love Nehemiah. He looks the enemy right in the eye. He says, this is, you don't have no portion in this rebuilding project. This rebuilding project is not yours. It's not yours. It's not yours. I love it. I love it. For Nehemiah, God rebuilt a city. For you and I, God's rebuilding your life. It's called discipleship. Hallelujah. 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 Come on, we rebuke the devourer. We rebuke it. We rebuke him. Every threat, internal and external. Show me who you are and fill me with your heart and me. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Father, we just pray that your word would be sealed. And we pray that your seeds would be planted. And that it would do everything that you have called it to do, Father. So I pray that as we walk out of here, we'd walk out in grace and in power and love and in joy. So I pray a blessing on everyone in this room, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. God bless you guys. Have a beautiful Sunday. We'll see you next week. God bless.